I'm Jason Pack, and this is Disorder, a podcast where we try to find order in our mad, 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 mad world. This week, what does South Africa stand to gain from accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza? We live in an increasingly fractured and partisan world, isolated in our own filter bubbles, and it's in this disordered environment We're agreeing on basic facts, and the underlying fundaments of reality is so tough that it's increasingly apparent that one man's version of order can be another woman's version of disorder. Everything about the October 7th Hamas atrocities and subsequent Israeli reprisals and ongoing war in Gaza has sparked controversy, contentions, claims, counterclaims. Yet no part of the ever-escalating rhetorical war has been as decisive and as polarizing as the legal case by South Africa and claims by various academics and media outlets that the IDF and by implication the Israeli state is perpetrating a genocide in Gaza. Now, I want to make clear, this episode is decidedly not about the justice of the South African case, nor the technical legal ways in which the court case is prosecuted, nor the ways in which the findings of that court case when they finally get to fruition in two or three years' time will be implemented by the United Nations. However, if you are interested in those topics, which I cannot discuss in detail because I'm not a legal expert, please allow me to direct you to an excellent episode of the Today Explained program by Vox on the South Africa genocide case. And that's going to be in a link in the show note. So I want to make clear, we are not debating the merits of that case or whether Israel's actions constitute genocide. What we are going to discuss is the geopolitics of South Africa's accusation of genocide and if South Africa is trying to present an alternative order on the international stage or whether South Africa is engaging in disordering or hypocrisy and how this fits in South Africa's decade-long engagement with Israel and the Palestinians. So to help me look through this telescope of the ICJ case from the other end, I'm joined by my old friend, and allow me to quell and say all-time favorite editor, Sasha Polakow-Saransky, who to my mind is truly the best person to be discussing this topic with us. His first book, The Unspoken Alliance, Israel's secret relationship with apartheid South Africa, it's a real tour de force of that old school diplomatic history. And Sasha brings a lot of deep personal knowledge to the South Africa file as his parents are from there. And he spent a lot of extended summers there as a kid and teen and graduate student. He also brings a top table global perspective to this issue due to his work as Deputy Editor of Foreign Policy. So, Sasha, thanks for joining me on Disorder. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. You know, last week, we heard from the courageous Russian human rights campaigner, Evgenia Karamurza. And I started by asking her about what was it like growing up in Russia's Far Eastern archipelago and how that changed her thoughts and development. And you might think that South Africa is not nearly as exotic as the Kirill Islands, but from where I'm sitting, Stellenbosch and the Cape of Good Hope are pretty exotic culturally and geographically. What's it like visiting there, and what perspective does that give you? 
Well, I think it's a very different country today than it was in the late 80s and early 90s when I first started going. At that time, no one really knew where the country was going to end up. 1988-1989, the years just before Mandela was released from prison, a lot of people around the world thought that it would probably descend into civil war. And even after Mandela was released and the transition began, people still worried because there was a, a huge amount of violence between the dying embers of the old regime and the liberation movement, but also violence between the African National Congress, which now rules South Africa, and other groups that were vying for power, like Inkata, the Zulu Nationalist Party. So it was a very tense time when I started going there. And I was a kid. I have memories of getting on a bus once as a 12 or 13-year-old and everyone looking at me in a funny way because apparently that was the black bus and not the white bus. And I was supposed to go on some other one at a different bus stop down the street. And I just stayed on it and I said, well, well I'll go on this bus. And, and the people on it got a kick out of that. So I saw the country undergoing a transition at a time that a lot of people would say it was at its worst, but starting to turn into something else. And there was a lot of idealism about South Africa at that point. And I certainly absorbed a lot of that. And there was a lot of excitement when there was the first democratic elections happened in 94. By then I was a teenager. And, and so I've seen the country go from a terribly unjust, racist, oppressive place to this sort of euphoric beacon to the world, at least as South Africa saw itself in, in the 90s under Mandela. And then in recent years, transform into something else, mired in corruption, crime, and no longer looking so great to everyone. Let's think a little bit about Africa and its role in kind of the chessboard of geopolitics. You recently wrote a review article for Foreign Policy, the year geopolitical competition returned to Africa. And, and I was very stimulated by this because... What I see about the enduring disorder is that geopolitical competition is everywhere, you know, whether it's China and Russia or the UAE and Qatar, there's a chessboard for resources and a struggle for influence everywhere. But maybe with all the coups that have benighted the Sahel over the last 18 months, is Africa even more of a chessboard for great power competition and medium power struggles than it had been previously? And how does that figure in South Africa's desire or need to present an image or an alternative way of doing politics on the global stage? That's a really important question. And the short answer is yes. During the Cold War, Africa was also a key part of the geopolitical chessboard and there were battles for influence renowned ones in places like Congo, between the Soviet bloc and the West. What's different today is that it's not just about natural resources, which Africa has always had in abundance, but what's changed is that Africa has the fastest growing population in the world and in 20 or 30 years is going to really be many would argue, the locus of global growth. And so the reasons for competition that were always there are still there, but now there's also this competition for a slice of that growth and this huge population that's growing. There's also 
I would argue, a less noble aspect to it, which is Europe's desire to keep many of those young Africans out of Europe who are seeking to reach European shores in search of a better life. And that has incentivized European governments to focus through a security lens and a migration restriction lens on Africa. But you can look at this from so many angles. It's not just the old great powers, the US, Russia, China, that are competing for influence there. Everyone is competing for influence. Turkey has a massive presence throughout Africa. The UAE, the Saudis are competing there. Brazil is present in Lusophone countries in Africa. Indian investment and presence in Africa is growing. And so the Chinese footprint is now much, much larger than the US footprint. And many African countries are very, very closely linked in terms of trade relations to China, which is significant. And usually those relationships have far fewer strings attached than US relationships with African countries. And it has become the most important trading partner for a lot of these countries. And so there's a massive amount of geopolitical competition involving great powers, middle powers, and all sorts of others who are trying to get a piece of the action there. I think the South Africans sense this. They know that they are one of the largest economies on the continent, along with Nigeria and Egypt. South Africa has also long coveted the idea that it might get a seat on the UN Security Council if there's expansion of the permanent members of the UN Security Council. South Africa hosted the BRICS summit last year. It was regarded as quite a successful event, and South Africa is really making a play to lead the global south beyond Africa. And if you look at the recent ICJ case through that lens, you see that it's not just about history. It's not just about South Africa restoring its image as a moral beacon. It's also about saying everyone else is sitting on the sidelines and we're making a play to be the real leader of the global south. Let's back up and mention its relationships with another country that's always had outsized influence to its population and economy, and that's Israel. Tell us a little bit more about how white supremacist Afrikaans politicians like Fosta emerged from an anti-Semitic Christian nationalist past, but then were able to cement a political relationship with Israel in the 1970s. I mean, that's quite the story that might be obvious to you and to those who know it, but many people don't know about. Sure. Well, we have to go back to World War II to really frame this historically. So you mentioned John Foster, who was South Africa's leader in the 1970s. He and many other Afrikaner leaders were open, enthusiastic Nazi sympathizers during and prior to World War II. We're talking about people who were going skiing in the 1930s on their holidays in Europe with Hitler and other future Nazi leaders. So these Afrikaner Christian nationalists, many of them went and studied in the Netherlands and Germany and Austria. They were formulating their ideas about white supremacy and Afrikaner-led ethnic state in South Africa at the same time that Nazi ideology was burgeoning in Europe. And so during the war, when the South African government was fighting on the side of the Allies, 
some of them were detained in internment camps by Allied forces during World War II because they were so open and enthusiastic in their support of the Nazis. And presumably they really opposed the transition that Jan Smuts had gone through to be such an important pro-ally leader of British imperial thought. And, and they rejected that. So there was tensions between the Afrikaans and British communities, right? Absolutely, which goes back much further in South Africa. You can go back to the 19th century and the Boer War. But for our purposes here, yes, they were the opponents of Jan Smuts and they defeated him in 1948 and came to power and started to build what we know today as apartheid. And so what happens in the 1950s and 60s, in the early days of Israel, under leaders like David Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, Israel was actually quite critical of this regime and made a lot of overtures in the late 50s to newly independent African states as the wave of independence rolled across Africa. And that started to shift in the 1960s. It started to shift more dramatically after the Six-Day War in 1967, when Israel occupies a substantial chunk of land. And it really shifts after the Yom Kippur War in 1970. And that is a war that both shocked Israel, but also devastated its economy and military. And Israel was in a rebuilding phase after the 73 war, and it relied heavily on its nascent and impressive defense industry to help rebuild the economy. And at that point, South Africa was becoming increasingly isolated. Criticism of apartheid was starting to spread. A few years later, there would be a UN arms embargo against South Africa, and Israel had this burgeoning defense industry was eager for new customers. And at this point in 1974 and 1975, a very close bilateral and highly secretive military relationship starts to develop. And Israel began to sell pretty much everything imaginable to South Africa. And this helped shore up the South African government at a time when it was facing major military threats on its borders from Soviet-supported forces. And it was building up its arsenal and starting to develop its own nuclear arsenal at this time. And Israel became a major, major conduit. And it was not a small thing. And it was not an inconsequential relationship. This was a lifeline for the South African military and it allowed them to remain a well-armed and equipped military power, both fighting its enemies externally and internally. And that hasn't been forgotten. That lifeline from Israel helped to sustain the apartheid regime for longer than it would have otherwise. Let's take this now from the other side. Let's talk about the legacy of South Africa and particularly the ANC's connections with the PLO and Qaddafi and whole reigns of Arab nationalist and Arab liberationist movements to look at things from that perspective. Sure. That's a very important part of it. Let's start with the PLO, because I think that that's the most salient point, especially in light of what's happening today. So at the same time that the Israeli government was building a close military relationship and helping to arm and sustain the apartheid regime, the South African liberation movement 
led primarily by the ANC, which was then largely in exile in neighboring countries and across the world, or in jail in the case of someone like Mandela, they were building relationships with other groups. And as Israel was supporting the apartheid regime, the ANC naturally gravitated to Israel's prime enemy, the PLO. And the PLO, while Israel was supporting the regime, was offering both rhetorical and, in some cases, material support to the South African liberation movement. And that wasn't forgotten either. The legacy of support and opposition still matters today. And there's also an element that I think goes beyond just historical debt in the sense that when we were suffering, they helped us. That's how the ANC, in very simple terms, sees the PLO. The other element that we haven't mentioned that I think is relevant here is not just about political alliances, it's about ideology and it's about ideological affinity. And I think this cuts both ways. It's important to mention that many of the leaders of the Israeli right openly expressed an affinity with the apartheid regime. And I would argue that that was motivated by a sense of minority survivalism, the idea that we are under siege as Afrikaners, we are under siege as Israelis. And there was similar rhetoric in Israel towards Palestinians and toward the Arab world more broadly. The PLO, the Palestinians, and many Black South Africans and allies of the liberation movement in South Africa felt an affinity with the Palestinian struggle. They saw their struggle as similar. They argued that they were both victims of settler colonialism and that they were having their movement restricted in South Africa and in the West Bank and Gaza, that there was spatial segregation, that there was second-class citizenship, or in the case of South Africa, a complete lack of political rights that they said was very similar to the complete lack of political rights in occupied territories for Palestinians. And so you see this rhetoric coming out even now. Given that complex legacy and really the ideational struggles that were at the core of the Israel-South Africa and ANC-Palestinian relationships, how can we look at where South Africa is today and its attempts to rehabilitate itself as a moral superpower? When I think of the country today, we know about Zuma's palaces. We think of him as being more corrupt and more venal than various Arab despots. From where I'm sitting, because I know the Qaddafi and Libyan angle, I know a lot about Bashir Saleh and the billions of dollars of Qaddafi and off-the-book wealth that are still in South Africa. So I have a certain view of South Africa as, you know, not really in the position to be a moral superpower. Am I missing something here? And, and how do these issues of corruption and these issues playing out in South Africa today? I don't think your characterization is unfair. Let's go back and do a little whirlwind tour of the last 20 or so years of history. So you mentioned these heady days, post-apartheid Mandela's president from 94 to 99. Everyone sees South Africa as the sort of cause for celebration, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's going on. But after Mandela came Thabo Mbeki, and the one thing that people remember today about the Mbeki era is the deaths of hundreds of thousands of South Africans from AIDS because the Mbeki government refused to adopt the general medical consensus on antiretroviral drugs. 
and deprived many sick South Africans. South Africa at that time had the highest HIV infection rate in the world. And research that has come out in recent years suggests that hundreds of thousands of South Africans lost their lives. Mbeki was followed by Jacob Zuma, who, as you've mentioned, was notoriously corrupt. He was charged with rape and acquitted. He was charged with corruption numerous times and is still facing trials. And the South African government during those years basically came under what was popularly known as state capture in South Africa. And the ANC during those years was notoriously corrupt. And South Africa today is at a point where it can't even keep the lights on for more than half the day. They're rolling blackouts regularly. The national utility is falling apart. The post office is falling apart. The railways are falling apart. And even though you have a president now, who I would argue is far more responsible and far less corrupt than Zuma, the current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, he presides over a party that is still divided between loyalists of the old government under Zuma and is now facing the possibility of losing its majority for the first time since the transition to democracy in 1994. On the foreign policy front, and this is important, South Africa has also done a lot to undermine this moral beacon image that it cultivated in the 1990s under Mandela. It failed to intervene or even flex its muscle vis-a-vis its neighbor Zimbabwe under Robert Mugabe when he stole elections. And then when Sudanese former leader Omar al-Bashir was being pursued by the International Criminal Court, and he came to South Africa, and South Africa as a signatory was obliged to arrest him, it did not lift a finger. And then, just a week before South Africa filed genocide charges against Israel at the ICJ, they hosted Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Hemeti, the leader of the Rapid Support Forces, the Sudanese rebel forces. But Hemeti was also, more notoriously, the leader of the Janjaweed militias during the Darfur genocide, what many would regard as a genocide, 20 years ago. And so South Africa is legitimately being called out by many of its critics today for hypocrisy on that front because it has not done much to act on the supposed moral values that it espouses in these situations that I've just listed and many, many others. That's really well put. The hypocrisy notwithstanding, you wrote... South Africa's diplomatic masterstroke was to bring the case at all. Can we see them as like using this masterstroke to host a conference or portray certain positions in the international fora? Like how would they want to use this um, buzz that they've generated? South Africa has always fancied itself as a mediator. You can remember in the early stages of the Russia-Ukraine war, they offered themselves. And in 2011, while the NATO fighter jets were enforcing Resolution 1973 over Eastern and Central Libya. It was Zuma himself who said, I can mediate between Gaddafi and the rebels, and I'm the only one who has the credibility with both sides. Mbeki did it in Sudan. The Libya example is an excellent one. So they haven't always been welcomed, but they they often offer their services, and they have this self-image of a country that went through very difficult negotiations 
during the democratic transition and succeeded in averting a civil war and went through a transition and so somewhat legitimately think that they have something to offer the world in that regard. I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to hold another international conference South Africa hosted the BRICS summit last year. They hosted the famous UN World Conference Against Racism in 2001. That is still a controversial event for many reasons. They will definitely try to do that. But I think they will also try to leverage it in terms of their trade relationships with other powers. They have a close relationship with China. They have an ongoing trade and military relationship with Russia. And I think it could benefit them at a time when the economy is cratering and they actually need some new friends and allies and foreign investment. So I think it could benefit them in that way too. But there's one other thing that I want to talk about that I think is overlooked in Washington and maybe even scoffed at. South Africa and many other middle powers simply don't give a shit what Washington thinks anymore. And you can see this in Saudi Arabia's behavior, in its rapprochement with Iran. You can see it in China trying to mediate between Saudi Arabia and Iran. You can see it in the UAE's behavior in all sorts of places around the world. A lot of middle powers that might have in the past actually minded what Washington thinks of what they're doing don't care anymore. And you saw this in South Africa last year when it had its arguably biggest diplomatic rift with Washington in decades over a Russian ship that docked at Simonstown near Cape Town. And the US ambassador came out openly and said they were loading arms destined for Russia and the South Africans denied it. And there was a diplomatic spat and things were sort of patched up behind the scenes. But everyone expected South Africa to sort of back down because here was the superpower saying openly in a very unusual and and unprecedented way from the ambassador, and they didn't really care. And I think that that is a sign of waning U.S. influence globally when your discipline, if you can call it that, or your ability to discipline your allies or smaller powers doesn't work anymore. And the U.S. is seeing this across the world of sort of trying to rein in its supposed allies. And they have gone down a different path. They see that they're in a multipolar world now where they might be able to exert a little bit of their own influence. And they're going to jump at any opportunity to exert some of their own influence. And that, I think, is what South Africa is seeing as an opportunity now and trying to seize. Yes, we're in a disordered world in which Rather than there being alternative poles of order, I would argue there are many poles of disorder. And this Palestinian issue is a great example. What I find so fascinating is that many in America find American rhetoric so hypocritical. So I like to spend the winter in New York, New Jersey. You literally cannot drive into Manhattan without seeing that inane slogan on three or four billboards. And I'm talking about the Nelson Mandela quote. Our freedom is not complete without the freedom of the Palestinians. It's a great quote. I liked seeing it once, but having seen it three or 400 times over the last two months, it just makes me think, who's the audience? What does this say about what America should or shouldn't be doing? What is the psyop implication of this slogan being everywhere? So I am the first to agree with the fact that America has had a lot of hypocrisy over the years not only on Israel-Palestine, but in lots of aspects of the Cold War, from Pinochet to Cuba. You know, we don't need to debate that. 
I think, pointing out a much more interesting point, which is that the enduring disorder is an area in which many allies don't coordinate well, and that because South Africa doesn't care what the U.S. is going to think of its actions, we're going to end up with suboptimal coordination on how global institutions work and function. In other words, why is South Africa going to work well with the U.S. even when we have shared interests? And the answer may be no, right? So the billboard is an interesting example of South Africa gaining the benefits of soft power without doing a thing. They didn't pay a cent for that, but hundreds of thousands of people are going to drive past it every day. And even if 1% of them- Millions. Millions Millions. of people will drive past it every day. And even if 1% of those people look up and say, huh, if Mandela said that, well, I'm with him, they've gained something and they didn't have to do anything for that. And so that's an excellent example of how the ICJ case could manifest itself in similar ways throughout the world. I can imagine a billboard in in Jakarta or a billboard in Dar es Salaam with something similar. And then people saying, yeah, South Africa, South Africa is the one that led here. Everyone else was standing on the sidelines and South Africa stood up for the underdog. And then to go back to your hypocrisy point, yes, of course, many Americans, ourselves included, are aware of the many historical episodes when the U.S. has conducted foreign policy in a way that completely contradicts its stated values when it comes to human rights and democracy. That's not a new story, but I think that what really grates on many Americans, but people across the world, is they watched for two years Russia bombing the hell out of Ukraine and the U.S. government denouncing it, the German government denouncing it, various European governments denouncing it, and and the collective West sanctioning Russia Ursula von der Leyen, the EU leader, coming out and calling what Russia was doing war crimes when they deprived Ukrainians of energy by bombing infrastructure during the winter. And then when something that looks very similar on their TV screens happens in Gaza, what's the response from Joe Biden? We stand with Israel. What's the response in London, New York? So people perceive a hypocrisy and people look at that and they say, how does this square with the stated U.S. commitment to human rights and democracy. How can they let this happen? Why aren't they acting? And people get really angry. And one of the outcomes that many Western leaders haven't really taken into account and something that could really haunt them down the road is that people will simply not listen the next time Biden or Olaf Scholz makes some sort of moral pronouncement against an adversary. They're going to say, you don't give a shit about human rights. You have no credibility. And I think that as that perception grows and spreads, any U.S. pronouncement on any foreign policy issue dealing with morality or human rights is just going to go over people's heads. And now, after the break, let's order the disorder. Let's try to order the disorder. Certainly, one man's version of international order is another man's version of complete international disorder. And to cast this in concrete terms, what to some people seems reasonable, oh, Israel has the right to defend itself, 
is seen as no, Israel is committing human rights violations and what they're calling their right to defend themselves is genocide or being called genocide in Gaza. However, opposing that is another man's disorder because look, the Israelis were attacked and this is not even invading anyone else's sovereign territory. Gaza is either terra nullius, depending on how you look at it, or it is Israeli sovereign territory. Who is the international community to tell them what to do? So to me, the South Africa role really puts into conversation the idea of these alternative orders and alternative disorders. So I want to ask you whether it's Cyril Ramaphosa or some grandees in the South African Foreign Affairs Department or someone who's doing the PR and media relations for South Africa, do they have a version of international order that they're actually promoting and where if they got all their wish lists, we would have an order? I don't think they have a coherent vision. I think it's more opportunistic. I think that is driven by a genuine ideological affinity that we discussed before and a genuine sense that Palestinians, like black South Africans in the past, are victims of injustice and that they are morally obliged to act. But there's also a very opportunistic side of it that is we can benefit in the upcoming election, our global image and related to that, trade relationships, diplomatic relationships can benefit. And even if they take that a step further, I think that the closest it gets to an alternative order, Jason, is something like a new non-aligned movement, a new global South that can coalesce and make decisions outside of international institutions that are either stalemated or dominated by Western powers that they can act on their own, that the South Africans can go to fellow African countries and maybe Brazil and India and say, this is what we think should happen. And that maybe someday there's an alternative international order where those countries, which are not small and not insignificant, can get together and actually make things happen regardless of what Washington thinks. And especially if they have China on their side could actually make things move. Now, I think that this kind of alternative order that South Africa and others in the global South imagine and, and maybe idealize a sort of new non-aligned movement, it probably doesn't work unless you have a superpower on your side. What if we back up and look about a South African version or vision of international order and justice? I, of course, think that what's happening to the Palestinians in Gaza is a tragedy, it's not justified. It's a blight on humanity. But what I bridle at in the ICG case is the idea that using some word and accusing and pointing figures at Israel is somehow going to make the plight of the Palestinians better. Because what I would like to see South Africa, as well as Qatar and the Emirates and Saudi do, is say, I raise my hand we will help in the administration of post-war Gaza. Here is our billion dollars, and we're going to give scholarships to lots of Gazan youth to study in our universities. Maybe I'm missing something, but are the South Africans proposing solutions? Certainly not on that scale. And to be honest, they don't have much to offer in that department. They certainly don't have money. <laughs> they have some good universities, I suppose they could invite some Palestinians to study there. But no, on some level, this is a play on the diplomatic stage. And if you want to be cynical, you can say it's purely theatrical. Right. If you're less cynical, you can say 
it's an opportunistic and, and self-interested play that as, is going to yield benefits for them diplomatically and perhaps economically at a time when they could use both. I think they are after something bigger, and I think that is this idea of being a moral beacon again. In some ways, this is tied to the United States' self-perception, right? The U.S. purports to be a believer in democratic values. The U.S. is always holding these democracy summits, the Africa summits. You know, they're constantly claiming to be exporting democratic values to the world. And yes, a lot of people think it's bullshit, but the claim still exists. And when the U.S. talks about other countries, it's constantly going on about the rule of law and commitment to the rule of law. So there's constantly this moralistic rhetoric coming out of Washington, even if U.S. actions don't seem to hold that up. And I'm just looking for a quote that I wanted to read that I think is highly relevant to this from a recent Guardian column Nisreen Malik wrote. She said in a column in January, when you're on the wrong side of the U.N. Secretary General, numerous human rights organizations, and objecting to a submission in a global court to which you are a signatory, and in the case of the U.S. and the U.K., a court that you established, you are dismantling your house with the very tools that built it. And I think that this captures the way that a lot of the world sees Washington right now, and the UK to some extent, is that these are the international institutions that you're always lauding. These are the international institutions that you supposedly want to protect. This is the values-based international order that you're always touting, yet where are you? Why not just say nothing? Why actually denounce the South Africans for bringing the case, dismiss it? It's not only a bad look, in terms of how the rest of the world sees the US and its commitment to the values that it claims to uphold, but it also just makes people stop paying attention. And I think that that is more than just a loss in terms of US global image. I think it translates into a loss of US global influence. Wow, Sasha. It's been a real treat to have gotten your perspectives and to have gotten to order the disorder a little bit with you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. If you too want to help order the disorder, tap follow right now and subscribe to our Substack. So for example, this week, I'm going to talk about different interpretations of what is genocide and why that is relevant, expanding from this discussion about South Africa and the ICJ case. And you can get that only on the Substack. And I'm sure that what we've said today is going to lead to some questions, maybe even some debates, discussions. You can always write us at disordershow at gmail.com. We'd love to have questions and we'll try to answer them on our next Q&A show. Our producer is George McDonough. Our executive producer is Neil Fern. Thanks for listening and I hope you have an orderly week. <laughs> <laughs>